Welcome to season three of the Bible for My Ordinary Life podcast. My name is Alicia Parker and I'll be your host. Are you interested in what the Bible really means or wondering how it's relevant to life today? If so, this podcast is for you. In this season, we are going back to where it all begins, the book of Genesis. No matter what your age or your background or your experience is with the Bible, I believe you can find something fresh and meaningful every time you study it. Hi, my name's Ariana. The Bible is for everyone. <laughs> Thanks, Ariana. All right, friends, let's get started. Welcome back to our study in Genesis. We are wrapping up much of Noah's story today, and after spending a few weeks really digging into his story, a part of me is sad to see this draw to a conclusion. We left our last episode marveling at Noah's faith, obedience, and perseverance. Noah has been a hopeful fulfillment of the promise God made back in Genesis 3. The promise that a seed would come, an offspring of Adam. And that seed would redeem the mess made in the garden. Today, we will see that Noah is not the promised seed. But he's been a good picture of the eventual seed. He's been faithful and obedient to his calling. Even after a year of floating on a boat while every living thing was destroyed by the flood, Noah exits the ark faithful and full of worship. In fact, the very first thing he did when he got off the ark was to build an altar to the Lord and sacrifice several animals. The Lord was pleased by his obedience and his worship. He promised to never strike down every living thing again. And in the concluding verse of chapter 8, God says these words, While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. And here, God has established a promise to not destroy the earth. And he's also established what appears to be very specific and different seasons. Think back to the description of the earth in Genesis 1. Do you remember the firmament? Until the flood, the firmament encircled the earth. It was a water vapor that had encircled the earth's atmosphere and most likely had kept the earth the same balmy temperature throughout the entire planet. But following the flood, the earth's topography and atmosphere had been radically changed. This is acknowledged in these words. And God promises that though there are changes in patterns of the days and seasons, he will stay true to his promises. This leads right into God's blessing on Noah and Noah's sons, which is recorded in the first few verses of chapter 9. And that's where we're going to pick up today. So let's read those words together. This is verse 1 here, starting in chapter 9. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the earth and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, 
by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply. Team on the earth and multiply in it. Now there are some big changes to Noah's life embedded in these verses. God is blessing him and his sons, and he's commanding them to be fruitful and multiply, to refill the earth, similar to how he commanded Adam and Eve to fill the earth. But now, the animals will fear humans. So from this, we can assume that up until the flood, humans and animals lived in peace. In verse 2, God specifically mentions that all beasts of the earth, birds of the heaven, and all creeping things, and all fish will be fearful of humans. God also announced that humans were now allowed to eat meat. Up until this point, God had only given plants for food, but now God is allowing humans to also eat other animals. But there's one caveat. Humans cannot eat meat with the blood still in it. That means the blood must be drained, and ideally the meat should probably be cooked. But it was now permissible to eat it. So as a part of this new way of life, God also made it clear that to kill another human would make one subject to death at the hands of others. And then we get to verse 7, and God again repeats the command to be fruitful and multiply to fill the earth. So in this seven-verse speech, so in this seven-verse speech God gives, he opens and closes with the same command, be fruitful and multiply. And the contents between those two statements focus on the new way of sustaining life. New foods are allowed, new fears between humans and other animals, new rules around eating blood and shedding blood, and God making it clear that although he won't be wiping the earth clean again, he is giving new expectations to humanity. Now, in the next 10 verses, God confirms the covenant he made with Noah. A covenant is a promise or a pledge between two parties, and usually both parties agree to fulfill some action or agree to abstain from some action. In this case, God doesn't require an action from Noah. In fact, God's covenants typically are very one-sided. God does all the promising, and humans just get the benefit of God's faithfulness. In this case, God is promising Noah and all the creatures released from the ark that he will never wipe the earth of all living creatures again. Let's read these covenantal verses from the Net 2 version. God said to Noah and his sons, Look, I now confirm my covenant with you and your descendants after you, and with every living creature that is with you, including the birds, the domestic animals, and every living creature of the earth with you. All those that came out of the ark with you, every living creature of the earth, I confirm my covenant with you. Never again will all living things be wiped out by the waters of the flood. Never again will a flood destroy the earth. And God said, This is the guarantee of the covenant I am making with you and every living creature with you. A covenant for all subsequent generations. I will place my rainbow in the clouds. And it will become a guarantee of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow appears in the clouds, then I will remember my covenant with you and with all living creatures of all kinds. Never again will the waters become a flood and destroy all living things. When the rainbow is in the clouds, I will notice it 
And remember the perpetual covenant between God and all living creatures of all kinds that are on the earth. So God said to Noah, This is the guarantee of the covenant that I am confirming between me and all living things that are on the earth. Notice that in all of that, God did not require anything of Noah or his descendants. He didn't say, I'll keep this promise if you do X, Y, or Z. He also didn't say, I'll keep this promise unless you do X, Y, or Z, and then forget it. I'm going back to plan A and wiping the earth clean again. He didn't do any of that. The covenant is God's promise to not destroy the earth, and there's no reciprocal requirement on the part of humans. But there is a physical sign. The rainbow will remind both God and humans of this promise. I have a hunch that rainbows didn't exist before the flood. I could be completely wrong. But we know that a water canopy covered the earth before the flood. It was this canopy that fell and also the deep waters that broke through the ground which caused the flood to be so cataclysmic. The disappearance of the canopy is what initiated the seasons and also the changes in temperature around the globe. It's quite possible that now that the water cycle was altered, rainbows existed, but only after the flood. And this visible sign of the post-flood world was to be a reminder of God's promise, no worldwide flood ever again. I really wish the story of Noah ended here. Noah's been so faithful and a hope to be the promised seed. But unfortunately, chapter 9 is not over. And we get a glimpse of a story that proves Noah is not the one. So let's pick up and read verses 18 through the end of the chapter together. The sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now Ham was the father of Canaan. These were the three sons of Noah, and from them the whole earth was populated. Noah, a man of the soil, began to plant a vineyard. When he drank some of the wine, he got drunk, and he uncovered himself inside his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father's nakedness and told his two brothers who were outside. Shem and Japheth took the garment and placed it on their shoulders. They walked backwards and covered up their father's nakedness. Their faces were turned the other way, so they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his drunken stupor, he learned what his youngest son had done to him. So he said, Cursed be Canaan, the lowest of slaves he will be to his brothers. He also said, Worthy of praise is the Lord, the God of Shem. May Canaan be the slave of Shem. May God enlarge Japheth's territory and numbers. May he live in the tents of Shem. And may Canaan be the slave of Japheth. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. The entire lifetime of Noah was 950 years, and then he died. Now, the author transitions from the covenant to this overarching statement in verse 19 that from Noah's three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, the whole earth was populated. The author also notes that Ham was the father of Canaan. This becomes an important detail in just a few verses, but what we see is this transition from getting off the ark and having the sacrifice and God's covenant into this broad statement about Noah and his family. And then we learn a few more details that Noah is good with the soil. He's a gardener and he plants a vineyard. Now, I don't know if you're familiar with the life cycle of vineyards, but it takes at least two years for vineyards to produce fruit. 
So don't read these verses as if they happened just a few days or weeks after the covenant was established. Life after the flood has resumed a rhythm. Noah's a grandfather. He's a gardener. And he and his offspring are living their new life. This could also be more than two years after the flood. It could be 10 or 20 or 100. We don't really know exactly when this next narrative took place. But we learn that Noah drinks some of his wine and he becomes very drunk. He goes in his tent and he uncovers himself. The nuance here about what this means has been the subject of much discussion. Somehow, Noah is naked in his tent. Did he mean to be? Was it because he was so drunk? We don't know. And then Ham walks into the tent and sees his father naked. And again, there's a lot of debate about what may or may not have been intended here. Some say that there's some hidden meaning and that Ham did some kind of sexual act with his father. Others say there's no evidence of that in the text. Now, this was a big deal in the ancient world. In our modern culture, walking in on a parent who's naked would be awkward, but it wouldn't be hugely offensive. In the ancient world, this went way beyond awkward. It was extremely offensive. Remember Adam and Eve? Their nakedness was their shame. It was their nakedness that made them realize that they'd sinned. And they immediately made clothes to cover themselves and they hid themselves because of their nakedness. So Ham has seen his father's nakedness, causing a huge offense. But what makes it worse is that Ham leaves the tent and tells his brothers. There was no reason to expose his father's shame to his brothers other than for the very purpose of bringing more shame on his father. And Ham is demonstrating that Straying from God's principles didn't take long after the flood. So despite living through this miraculous salvation from this worldwide flood and being part of God's covenant for all of the next line of humanity, Ham is not perfect. And Ham makes a really poor choice. Noah's not perfect either. He got drunk. He passed out naked in his tent. And now Ham sees it and leaves the tent, spreading his father's shame around the family. So thankfully, Ham's brothers do the right thing. They take a cloak and walk backwards into the tent to cover their father up, making sure their heads are turned so they don't see him. Noah sobers up, wakes up, and finds out what has happened, and he is not happy. But did you catch the curse? He didn't curse Ham. He cursed Ham's son, Canaan. Remember earlier that the author mentioned that Ham was the father of Canaan and actually mentioned it twice. This is why. The author was setting the audience up for this verse where Canaan is cursed because of Ham. No other grandson is mentioned here specifically, although in chapter 10, there is a genealogy of the three sons. But here in chapter 9, Noah cursed Canaan. There are four sons of Ham listed and Canaan is listed last. He is the youngest. So the curse is directed at the youngest son of the offender. And often in the Bible, we see the sin of one generation having an impact on the generations that come after. The curse is that Canaan will serve his brothers, or in the version I read, be a slave to his brothers. And on this point, many scholars have argued about whether this curse is on all of Ham's descendants or on just Canaan's descendants or just Canaan himself. And there isn't clear agreement in the various commentaries I read. 
And I don't think it's necessarily the main point anyway. Canaan is specifically cursed, but in ancient times, that curse could have included all of Ham's line since the youngest was called out. It may also be that the intention was just that Canaan and his descendants would be impacted by the curse. I think the bigger point being made here in this narrative is the effect of sin. We aren't more than one generation from a worldwide flood and a miraculous salvation of Noah and his family. Yet already humans once again are demonstrating their depravity. The promised seed is not Noah and is definitely not Ham. So what exactly is this curse? Noah says Canaan is to be the lowest of slaves, or some versions might say the servant of servants. He goes on to say, praise the Lord, the God of Shem. Canaan will be his slave. God will extend Japheth. He will dwell in the tents of Shem, and Canaan will be his slave. So from this passage, there have been those who have argued for the institution of slavery. They have pointed to this and said that the race of those who belong to Ham's line are supposed to be enslaved to the races of humans from Shem and Japheth's line. I gotta be honest, this teaching is completely anti-biblical and anti-gospel. Nowhere does God ever support the idea that humans are to be subject to other humans to slavery. This is a curse. It's a result of sin. It's not a justification of racism or slavery. All humans are image bearers of God, and we are all technically part of one race. So to subject any human to slavery or have an unconscious or conscious belief that one genetic line of humans is better than another, or that one line of humans should serve or be enslaved to another, is sin. And it is not of the gospel. Noah curses Canaan because of sin. But notice the flip side of this curse. Noah praises the God of Shem and Japheth. He doesn't necessarily praise the sons who did the right thing. He praises God. He asks God to enlarge and bless Japheth's territory. Noah certainly wasn't perfect. And in his drunkenness, he exposed himself. And his very imperfect son took a bad situation and made it worse. The promised seed who would come to redeem the curse in the garden is not Noah, and it is not Noah's direct seed, but it will come from Noah's line. Jesus's lineage can be traced all the way back to Noah's son, Shem. It is from Shem's line that our next major player will emerge, and that is Abraham. But I don't want to get too ahead of ourselves quite yet. Noah's story is compelling because he gets so much so right. He is the only man on the entire earth that God chooses to preserve from the flood, and yet Noah is flawed. And the same is true for us. No matter how much we get right, we are flawed. We cannot earn our salvation, even if we try our whole lives to tip the scales in our favor. It just doesn't work that way. We can't outweigh bad with good and earn God's favor. God's way is so much better than that. Only through faith in Jesus, the promised seed, the one who lived a perfect life and became the payment for our sins, can we be rescued from the curse of sin. Noah was rescued from the flood. He was saved by the ark. But that was his physical salvation. His faith was his spiritual salvation. 
Hebrews 11.7 says this, By faith, Noah, when he was warned about the things not yet seen, with reverent regard, constructed an ark for the deliverance of his family. Through faith, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Faith is the pathway to salvation. Faith in the promised seed, Jesus. I am so appreciative of Noah's story. I admire his faithfulness and his obedience. But it's God's faithfulness that truly knocks me to my knees in gratitude. Despite all my flaws and all my sin, God has offered me salvation. God is the ultimate promise keeper. When he makes a covenant with us, he does not break it. And we will see that theme emerge time and time again in Genesis. We can admire various humans for their faith and perseverance, but the true credit and all the glory all belongs to the Lord. He is the one who is eternally faithful. Thank you so much for listening today. We hope you enjoy what you heard. Don't forget to leave a review and connect with us on Instagram. The Bible is for everyone.